Everybody, welcome back to Climate Transformed and our Women of Climate series. One of the things that we were determined to do when we launched the series or first started thinking about the series back in, uh, I think it was November of last year when, when we first started putting pen to paper, the whole concept of focusing on hard to abate sectors was something which we wanted to really prioritise. And I won't go on because I can go on to an hour long rant, Magali, and I, I want to spend more time talking about you than my views on this sort of thing. But I think there's too much attention paid to the here and now and trying to do no harm by investing in companies like Apple and the like, where if we're going to get to net zero, it's industries like steel, cement, petrochemicals and the like that we, that's where the greatest benefit is going to be produced. And Magali Anderson, who's the Chief Sustainability and Innovation Officer at Wholesome, which is the world's largest cement maker, as far as I know, by tonnage, is at the forefront of all of this. And she's been at Wholesome for the last seven years, had a nearly 15-year career at Slumberger. Magali, I'm going to let you explain your background to your audience, to the audience, because I'll never do it justice. But everyone, as per normal, we've got a Q&A function at the bottom of the screen for questions after Magali's presentation. Magali, before we dive into that, let's dive into you a little bit more. Tell me, how did you get here, where you are today? What got you there and what drove you there? Hi, and good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for the question, Paul. I guess you're not asking how I got to in front of my computer this morning. <laughs> and the question is more about how I got to that job. You know, I had a, I was going to say a standard career, but I guess my career is not that standard, right? I am an engineer by trade, and I went for the high technical adventurous career and that was at that time the oil and gas industry, which was promising to you a huge amount of challenges, huge amount of troubles, traveling in places where you would not necessarily think of going on vacation and discovering new culture, etc. I got a huge amount of it. And I was I started my career in Nigeria working on an oil rig. I continued in all kinds of countries. I've worked in Angola, in China, um, Indonesia, and I'm forgetting some, and I'm not here to make a list anyway, it's not the point. It's more, I've had this international career. I am a Jane of all jacks, I guess you could call me. Jane of all trades, I'm <laughs> getting it wrong here, where I have touched all kinds of career. Again, I'm an engineer by trade. I've had PNL roles. I've had manufacturing roles, uh, supply chain roles, shared services roles, etc., etc. And then reach the age of 50. And, you know, there's a moment in life where at 50, you think, what do I want to do with my life? So apparently some men like to buy a sporty car at that point. My step was more, how do I give purpose to my life? And giving purpose to my life was, at that time, I was managing a big manufacturing center in China. And uh, it was, I got that opportunity to join the wholesome group as the head of health and safety. And I thought getting up every morning to save lives was a pretty cool thing to do. After three years of that and obtaining good results, and good results in that case means many lives saved, which is many families, drama, tragedy saved. That was pretty good. My, the board and the CEO of Wholesome decided to create that chief sustainability officer job position at the executive committee level, and they thought maybe I, I could do it. And at that moment, I told my boss, I told Jan, I said, I will do it. Well, first, of course, thank you. That's what you should always say when someone offers you a job. And I told him, you know, I will do it because I think I really want to have an impact on planet and people. And if you are okay with that, then I can do it. But if I make whole seem looks good on the way, it will be a collateral effect. It won't be the main driver of my actions. And I need you to 
be aligned on that right with me because if you are not, I don't think we are going to work very well together. And he said, yeah, green light, go ahead. And that's what I've been driving me for the last three years and a half in my CSIO job. I'm glad you didn't go off and buy the electric Porsche and do that. But many other <laughs> senior executives, most of the male would have done in your position. Please, questions for Magalie at the bottom of the screen. Ashok Paul, so the last three years and a half have been really a transformation of policy. And it's been, so sustainability has gone from being a function, a site function that was active already, had been active for a while, to being embedded in the strategy of the company and driving a transformation of the company. And that has been extremely exciting. And I won't spend time on this slide, but just to give a bit of background, as you said, we are a major building material company. We operate in 60 countries, 2,300 sites, 60,000 employees. And the reason I think this is important is because everything we do has to be done across all geographies and at scale. And it makes things quite different from other businesses. But I won't spend time on here. It was more to give the context. The other contextual aspect I want to give is the fact that as of today, about 1.6 billion people don't have a proper roof on their head. About 2 billion people are going to move to the cities, 2.5 billion, in the next 30 years. And 60% of the infrastructure needed for that does not exist yet, which means that we need to build the equivalent of New York City on a monthly basis. We need to do that while protecting nature, while giving better living standards that people are expecting, um, and while protecting our resources. And this is one of the greatest challenges, I think, that we have in front of us right now. And where us, as a building material company, have a key role to play. And the way we want to play that role is looking at the full value chain, which is really looking at how we build better, and that's how we decarbonize the construction, but also how we decarbonize the actual cities and how we look beyond the, just, just the building material, how we do it in a circular way. And building new from old is really that idea that if we need to extend the life of the buildings as much as we can, but when they reach a stage where they need to be destroyed, how do I destroy that concrete, put it back in my product and make a new building with it? And of course, I should have started with that, our green, greening our own operation on what we do. But I think we need to have a holistic view. The entire built environment represents about 37% of the total CO2. So we can't just look at things in isolation. So I just wanted to give a bit of context to show that things are not as simple as saying, let's stop making cement. No, we need cement because we have great challenges ahead of us. And cement can help decarbonizing the food environment. Now, when we look at uh, the, the reason I put these slides here, we renewed our strategy in 2021 because we had a business strategy for 2022, which we finished one year in advance. And when we renewed our strategy in 2021, which is now called Accelerate Green Growth, you have here the very standard financial KPIs that you would find in any business strategy. But what's really more interesting than those is this other set of KPI, which was published at the same time and are entirely part of the strategy. And if you do a quick counting, there's as many, maybe even more, sustainability KPI are their financial KPI. And that's part of that transformation I was talking about. So it's not anymore something we do. It's part, it's entirely embedded 
of the company strategy. And if you look at the KPIs, they go on, they cover everything. They cover the CO2, they cover the circular economy, they cover the water, but also the diversity of the people, green financing, etc. And it was really important to have KPIs that not only look a bit at 2025, but also think that we are doing today, such as selling our low carbon concrete, which is called EcoPact. And now to continue, I keep saying I'm putting things in perspective, but again, because I'm trying to explain the challenge we have in front of us. You called us, Paul, earlier the hard to emit sector. I'm going to correct you here because I prefer to call myself the full of opportunity sector, because this is where things need to happen and this is where we will make them happen. But one of the beauty to be part of the famous sector is that a lot of our missions are under our own control. So for people who wouldn't be familiar with Scope 1, 2, and 3, Scope 1 is our own operations, and it represents about uh, 60% of our total emission. Then we have Scope 2. Scope 2 is electricity used to run some of our equipment. And then we have Scope 3. Here's the Scope 3. It's actually 19% of what we buy. But the 17% is financial investment. A bit, it's an operation where we have equity shares, but we don't actually operate. It's a bit like a bank, when the bank takes shares in a company. So those 17% is not something you would typically see in our industry. But just a good thing that really our scope one and those 39% and 20% are where my big focus has to be, because that's where we can have quick impact. Last year, we actually just issued our climate report early April, and that climate report is put at the vote of our shareholder for the second time, second year in a row. Last year, we had 90%. This year, the AGM happens on the 4th of May. So needless to say, I'm slightly stressed at the moment, but I have taken the challenge to beat last year's result. So 4th of May, we will know. And one of the main things we did was to upgrade our target to 1.5 degree with SBTI. We had before that we were what we call well below two degree. And the reason for that was because SBTI had not yet issued the roadmap for our sector, SBTI being science based target initiative for our sector to go down on 2030 target to go down to 1.5 degree. Now it's been issued. So we have our scope one and two target rated for 1.5 degree uh, short term, but we also have all our scopes target, all validated by SBTI all the way to net zero. And that curve you see here is an extract of our uh, climate report. And it shows the level of transparency we have where we explain how we are going to decarbonize lever by lever. The big part here that represents 44% is carbon capture, utilization and storage, but also new technology, novel cements that we could find on the way. And as you can see, they're really kicking after 2030 mainly. And we are going to do quite a big reduction between now and 2030 just through our traditional lever. So the good news is we have already reduced our CO2 by 28% since 1990 using the traditional levers. So those are levers that we know very well and we know how to accelerate very well. Sorry to interrupt. Can I just ask a quick question about that slide, the previous slide you had up? So you've worked closely with SBTI in terms of getting to these sort of projections. How does SBTI think about the notion of future innovation? 
as a mechanism for to get down emissions over time because you know it is the unknown unknown in terms of i think we could in the world that we live in for the amount of r&d dollars that you're spending on these sort of projects right there will be our ability to capture carbon more cheaper will come through but there is obviously that uncertainty how do you and how do sbti think about future innovations as a, basically to define the slope of that curve so I would say maybe more than SBTI, I would talk about the Global Cement and Concrete Association. So it's not Holcim who said we have to do it this way. It's been a collegial work during with all the industries. So the Global Cement and Concrete Association represents 80% of the cement produced outside China. And that's a work that has been done with a lot of experts, which define the roadmap. And then there was a lot of discussion with SBTI with their experts to discuss what looks like reasonable, what could be done, and particularly what, what SBTI really does. They don't necessarily go in huge details of your levers, but they want to make sure that your pathway follows the IEA, which is International Agency for Energy Pathway, which itself is derived from the IPCC order report. So that's really how it works. SBTI, IEA gives the overall pathway by sector and SBTI details it and tells you where you need to go. And so GCC is very involved. Now, today, we actually think we could do the 44% just with CCUS. And I have a slide on CCUS after. We'll go a little bit more detailed. But the reason it's shaded on that slide is because we think that there's a potential for noble cements to happen. Now, I'm also in charge of innovation, not just sustainability, and I spend a lot of time with innovators. I don't think there's any innovator in the room today who can tell you what's going to happen in 2040. Uh, if that person is there, then I would struggle to call that person an innovator. Innovators have an idea of what will happen in the next two, three years, maybe five. So to be able to predict right now that in 2040, there won't be a noble seaman that can take a significant part of that curve to go down, I don't think anyone can say it. So that's why if nothing happens, we need 44% of CCUS. Hopefully something will happen, we should lower that ambition. But if we have to do 44% of CCUS, we are gearing up for that. And the world has to gear up for that. But I will go a little bit more details when I talk about CCUS in, in a further slide. So. Here, I was just going to explain what you see here is a cement plant and to explain a bit the, the, the levers. So to make cement, we get um, the material from the quarry. So we have all of that to decarbonize our on-site vehicles, all the electricity to make that function. Then we bring that to our cement plant. And our cement plant, you have to think about it as a mega oven. So a mega oven that needs to go to 1,400 degrees, heat up limestones, and what comes out is clinker. And one of the big levers, and if you remember the slide that two slides ago, I was saying 20% of our uh, total emissions come from alternative, from the fuel, that's to heat up that clean to 1,400. So one of the big levers to decarbonize is to use alternative fuels such as biomass, waste, etc. We already have plans that today, at, are running at almost 100% replacement, 98%. We've actually managed to run a plant for more than a month at 100% replacement. So here we know what to do. It's a scaling up thing, challenge. We are 27 replacement across the world, but way higher, for example, in Europe, where waste streams are, are easy to access. The, the big other part, the 5 39% in the previous slide, is about 
the process emission. And those process emissions comes from the calcination of the limestones, which emits CO2. And here, this, what we are doing to, to reduce that is what comes out is a clinker. And how much clinker we put in cement will determine the total CO2. So clinker emits a lot of CO2. If I manage to have a clinker factor reduced, so today we are at about 70% clinker factor, that means 30% of it is with not carbonated materials such as byproduct from other emissions. So how to reduce a clinker? But even if I reduce a clinker to really a low number, and I can do it with uh, byproduct from, from others, but also with construction demolition waste, with scats and clay, we have all kinds of, um, of minerals that can be used to do that. What will be remaining is where I need carbon capture. This is a CO2 of the remaining of the calcination of the limestone of that clinker that needs to be captured. And at the end, building better with less is what I was saying is how do we help the industry to build the same object with less cement, less concrete, such as doing 3D printing, etc. So I'm just putting a few highlights because it's good to show concept, but it's also good to show what we are doing today. So we use calcium clay and we can lower the CO2 by 50%. And we've done that in, in several projects in Europe and Latin. I talked about uh, alternative fuel, but also we had the work first of cement with 20% construction demolition once it's tied. Why it's a work first? Because that's the only, we do it in Switzerland, which is the only country in the world which allows that norm. But also we work a lot on waste heat recovery and that's more for our scopes. Two, where we have 300 gigawatt of electricity from waste heat recoveries in operation. So very large numbers. I promised to you to talk about CCUS a bit. So in our roadmap to 2030, we said we have to capture 5 million tons. That slide here, I will save you doing the calculation. It's about 13 million tons. So we have 11 flagship projects, which is projects where we have partnership, where for some of them, we have financing. Two of them, we received 338 million from the EU Innovation Fund, that's the one in Poland and the one in Germany. And so all those projects are ongoing. And there's a huge amount of work done um, from everybody, from, of course, us, but also the cement industry. We actually have uh, the Global Cement and Concrete Association has something called Innovendi, where we innovate together because we know that there's no other option at some stage to do carbon capture. But also the world itself, you know, about a month ago, the UK had known they were going to spend 20 billion in carbon capture. There was similar, the IRA in the US is also putting a fair bit of billions into carbon capture. I think there's a realization that the best way to reduce the amount of CO2 that goes outside the atmosphere is to capture it and bury it and do something with it. And that's why we have today 50 projects ongoing. 11 flagships that are here representing 13 million tons, which is quite a significant amount of, um, of CO2. And that's why we are quite confident about the curve I was showing earlier. Maybe I will go a bit fast because I was going to talk about circular economy here, about how much waste CW we recycle, but I, I will just go a bit fast. I want to spend two minutes on nature. We have a very strong nature strategy where we talk about where we look at our biodiversity and we took a science-based approach to our definition of what is a nature positive future for our company. And except if you ask me later to go into details, I will, but right now, for the sake of time, I won't get into too much details. Also on freshwater, why it's important? It's important because remember what I said earlier, we have to build 
New York City on a monthly base. If we don't do it differently, if we don't do it by looking at vertical forest, urban forest, green roofs, etc., it's going to be a real problem. We, we need to reconcile nature and cities. And we are working on products today. We have, we're not working on products that are out there. Hydromedia is a product that already exists where I can literally plant trees in the concrete, more or less, because it's porous. But also that concrete absorbs about 600 liters per square meter per minute and allows a huge reduction of flooding into cities. So I just wanted to spend two seconds there because when we talk about cement walls, we always think of CO2, and I don't think we should forget about the nature. And the last one is the last part of the equation, which is the 1.6 billion people who don't have a roof on their head. This is actually a house we printed, 3D printing in Malawi. And we also 3D printed a school there. We just printed some affordable houses in Kenya. And we are working on technology today to really close the societal gaps that are currently existing. And by 3D printing, not only we go fast, the school we printed, we could print the walls in 18 hours, but also we use much less material than traditional construction. So it's actually much lower CO2. And finally, again, I'm in charge of both innovation and sustainability. 80% of what we do in innovation is dedicated to sustainability, but it's very important to look at all the um, strategic partnership we have with academia, but also the open innovation ecosystem. We don't believe that the solution will only come from us. We truly believe that the solution has to come from everybody. There's fantastic startups working on, on great projects right now. And if someone comes to disrupt the industry, we want to be part of it. We want to be our own disruptor of our own industry, if that's a solution for quicker decarbonization. And this time, I think it's my last slide. I just wanted to talk about transformation journey. We talk a lot about sustainability nowadays. I go to a lot of conferences, listen to a lot of my peers. And when you look at some, some companies are still uh, understanding your footprint. It's something you have to do. I think we've been understanding our footprint since about 30 years, our case. Set up targets would be the second plan the second level of maturity, having an action plan at unit level, uh, because you can't reach your target if you don't have a plan, and a very strong governance to manage that plan, but also to make sure people have the right reward. I would say we're definitely at level four. Uh, that's already pretty good, I think. But the real game changer is when you change the business model. When you find a way to get incentivized, to produce less, for example. And how do you do that? How do you transform entirely the way you are thinking about the business to, to, to change that? And that's the most difficult part, but also the most challenging, but also the most rewarding part, because if you manage to do that, you can really make some huge leadway. But it means you're not looking at yourself anymore. You're not just working on your own product, your own innovation, your own factories. You are now looking at the entire value chain and Instead of being a commodity cement provider to a procurement guy in a construction company, you need to become a partner of the designers, the architects, etc., to think differently, to think of building differently. But that's, for me, I would say the holy grail of the true sustainability journey.
I crack the same jokes every week, so please forgive me. One of the things we said when we were doing our preliminary call that we wish we had recorded that preliminary call because when I have the early stage calls, I always get so many insights out of it. And I want to go back to, let's start with the last slide and the last point you made on the last slide, which is talking about business model change. And you, as you just alluded to, you said that's the, the holy grail. So, and we were talking when we were sort of prepping this about the whole notion of that holy grail of business model change. Now, there is a connotation in that business model change, and that is that effectively you compete with your customers, right? So whether it's in the traditional business model of Wholesome back pre pre your involvement, you had engineering firms, you had construction firms, and you sold a product to those firms, right? But I hear from you now that there is a design element, there's an engineering element, there's an innovation element. There is a that you're not selling products. But we are still selling a lot of products. In your quest for the Holy Grail, yeah, in your quest for the Holy Grail, that you sell services as much as you sell products. Talk a little bit about the difficulty in that transition, because that sounds like, again, it's the Holy Grail, but again, competing with customers. How do you square all those circles? No, it's really about selling systems versus not services. We are still a product manufacturer. So it's about selling systems. So for example, if I have a flooring system where by design using artificial intelligence, I put much less cement because I only follow the, the compressive strength lines and then I don't need to empty between those lines so to, to fill it up with cement. So I can really make a flowing system which much less concrete than the traditional one. That's fantastic, right? That's fantastic. And I will be very motivated to sell it if I sell the system itself. But if I sell the concrete, why would I be motivated? Because that means selling less, less concrete. Mm. So if I sell the flowing system for the same price and I put less concrete, I make a lot of money. And it's really finding that fine balance of win-win where... I'm still selling a, a floor, but this time I'm selling, I'm selling a flooring system, which is going to make it a lower CO2, but because, but I need to be incentivized properly for it so that I can motivate everyone. And now I am not selling to the construction company anymore because that flooring needs to be designed that way. And that's what I meant by it's a completely different. So it's something we work on with, with the marketing team. Everyone is very excited by the topic, but Let's be clear, it's going to take a while because it's a completely different way of looking at the business. But maybe I will give an example of, of um, industry who's managed to do that well many years ago is a lighting system. You see, for example, companies used to sell bulbs and one day they say, we are going to sell light. And it's completely different because when you sell a light, your incentive is that the bulb that you have put in the light has to last as long as possible. That's how you make the most money. But when you are selling bulbs, it's great when the bulb breaks down because you sell more bulbs. It's the exact same principle. How do we look at each business model and see how we find a, a business model, which means that producing less makes you make more money? Because again, effectively what you're trying to, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're trying to say, You've gone from concrete being an essential building element, right, where it became the standard way to build buildings, simplistically, 
um, to selling systems that become the standard. Yeah. So in the modern city, when we are building Manhattan every month or building, building New York City every month until 2050, you want to have the systems that you're selling as the standard in each new building that you're providing that, st- that system here. That could be an ideal situation. And again, we are not there yet. I'm just saying that that's how I think every company should challenge themselves. And that's why I was giving that as example. And we're definitely not there, but that's what we want to aim. And But it's also by using 3D printing. When we 3D print the foot of a sphere, for example, of so not a sphere, sorry, of a windmill, it's round as well as it's fair. The, the foot of a windmill, not only we use much less concrete, but it goes higher, so there is much more CO2 output. So it's really this partnership which allows to think together to build something with less concrete and more efficient. And we will do it first with the right partners who think forward and are ready to look at different business models with us. It's going to take a while, I think, before it becomes... No, but that's what I think every industry should aim for because you could apply that to every industry. Right. So let's look at 3D printing as a microcosm in all of this, right? So I get the sense that 3D printing is one of those misunderstood industries at the moment. Talk a little bit about how Wholesome has embraced 3D printing, right? You've got, obviously, you've got your collaborations with academia. I'm assuming there's probably some startups, companies that you've bought over time. Tell me how you think about scaling a technology like 3D printing, where it goes from being something niche that you can put in a presentation saying, look, we built a school in Mali with a 3D printer, isn't that cool, to something that is really scalable where it can have a true impact on your bottom line. If you think about it, we've been building the same way for centuries and centuries, not to say millenniums. 3D printing is certainly the most disruptive thing that has happened to the construction industry in centuries. (laughs) So... It takes a little while for people to accept a disruptor like that. But it works really well for everything that's precast. It works really well for houses, not necessarily so well for... It's a bit harder to do big buildings. But once you have a serial of things, um, you can really accelerate a lot. Have, again, 18 hours to build the world of a school in Malawi, I think it's pretty amazing. You still need, of course, to put the roof and everything on, but it can bring real advantage. Now, it solves several problems. In the global north, in general, there is a huge shortage of talent in the construction industry, which can be quite a showstopper for some of the development. And 3D printing can help there. In the global south, the way I, I look at it is I don't think it's competing with local industry because there's enough place for both. There's such a gap to cover that we should allow both to run in parallel, the traditional industry with the 3D printing. And then we developed a skill job because it's a different type of job with a certain skill. We, of course, you need the ink itself, and we are now developing the ink locally, the ink being the concrete that you print. So it's relatively high technology. So as any technology, it takes a a, a bit of time, but we have a a strong partner. We actually took a bit of equity share in them called Cobot. It's certainly the best printer that exists. And I don't know how long it will take. It's hard to say because I don't know how long it will be to be adopted. But again, you have to think of it as a disruption compared to traditional method 
of building. But if you, I don't know how much you looked at the last slide or one, the second to last slide I showed, but this house looks pretty cool. We're not talking about doing something that looks bad. It actually looks pretty cool with the, the result of it. So, so I hope people will get excited about it and that there will be a great future to 3D printing. No, it's, it's incredibly interesting because, again, you're going from this very rudimentary technology, which is making cement, which, again, has been around for in its current form for well, more than 150 years, but in the current form of using fossil fuels to, to generate it in that amount of time, to other sort of other niche technologies that we're, we're trying to scale. What's another example of a, outside of 3D printing, another niche technology that you're excited about in terms of its potential? So outside carbon capture, because I think carbon capture has a fantastic potential and would solve a huge amount of problems. But we had a fresh innovation first earlier last year, which is doing a concrete hand made hundred or clinker, sorry, and now you all know what clinker is, made of hundred percent recycled content. And we announced earlier this year that um, just after the summer we should have the first building built with a concrete made of hundred percent recycled. And that's great because today, when you look at the resources that the that the built environment needs, it's enormous and. Um, OECD is seeing it doubling by 2030. So how much resources you are taking from the environment is a second very big challenge of our industry. Oh, I don't know, second, third, I'm not sure in which order that goes. But And today, if we can do concrete with 100% recycled content, I think it's quite phenomenal. So we did this clinker in three different cement plants in two different countries, and we did 14,000 tons last year. And why it's important is because that means it's out of the lab. That means you can just take any cement plant and make it. And that's great. So it's not just a super niche thing. The, the one of the potential, not showstopper, but slowdowner <laughs> would be, I don't know if that exists, a slowdowner expression. I'm using that going forward. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the waste stream. It has to be economical. Remember, concrete is not a very expensive commodity. So it has to be quite economical to bring all those waste streams together to make it. So it's more a logistic slash cost problem than a technical problem today for big escalation. We've done a lot of content on circular economy. And at the end of the day, the biggest threat to the circular economy is transportation cost, is getting feedstock from one place to another. Whether that's recycled plastic, whether it's yeah, whether it's things like even things like wood pellets and stuff like that. It's yeah. at the end of the day, if it's not within a hundred miles, the economics plummet to do do economics and CO two because CO two of transportation could also play a big impact. But to put things in perspective, last year we um, used thirty four million tons of waste of other industries or the waste from your kitchen. Maybe not your personal kitchen, Paul. I'm not sure we use your waste, but we could have in our kilns, either as a waste to energy process or the famous minerals I was talking about to lower our clinker factor. So we already process a huge amount of waste and we have the potential for much more. We have a big target. One of the targets for our strategy for 2025 is to process 60, to go from 34 million tons to 60 million tons. So it's quite enormous. It's interesting. Matt, let me talk a little bit about green premiums. I think green premiums get a bad rap, right? Because there's this notion that that people are having to pay more because, because things cost more to produce with a low carbon footprint. 
I think about completely differently. I think about this through a business opportunity. If I am buying, whether it's systems from Wholesome or whether I'm just buying cement for my backyard as a retailer, right? For me, if I want to buy low-carbon cement at a premium because it is, again, for my retail project, for paving my pool, that that is what I want to do personally and morally, or whether I'm a large developer in New York City who knows that green buildings are going to get a premium in rent, right, that that paying more for a green product is smart business, right? Talk a little bit about the way that you think about pricing of these products. So the pricing of Ecopack versus traditional cement, I see no reason why you shouldn't charge a premium for that, right, and charge a significant it all depends at the end also at the cost and the market where you operate, right? So a compact, which is our low-carbon concrete, and the definition for us of low-carbon concrete is 30% lower CO2 than the local standards. So each compact in each country could be a bit different because it depends on the norms and legislation of the countries. We launched it two years and a half ago, and when we launched it, a lot of people told us there's no low-carbon cement market. So you're in part of that chicken and egg. Okay, you say there's no market, but of course, if there's no product on the shelves, then how do you develop the market type of thing? So we decided to go bold and go for it. We deployed it in, in more than 30 markets now, and we just announced our Q1 results. And in Q1, it represented 16% of our total concrete sales. So... Well, sorry, one six. One six. So tell me... Which product have you come across ever in a very mature industry that represented 16% of market share within two years and a half? When is the last time you came across such products? Sorry, that's, that's like iPhones. That's the sort of thing you can compare it. But this is a super well-established industry on something that is considered as a cheap commodity, right? So... In some countries, we do have a price premium. And again, it depends on the type of clients. It depends if it's clients who really want it. But we went for market penetration more than price premium because we want it to become a norm. We want to only sell Ecopact. If we could, we would only sell Ecopact because it's not always more expensive to, depending of, again, the, the configuration. But One of the ways to reduce our CO2, as I said, is to replace our fossil fuels by our energy we use, by waste, etc. With how crazy the energy prices have been going over the last two years or year and a half, that has been really good business. So we haven't necessarily spent more money by doing that. Of course, there is an upfront investment, but the ROI is nowadays pretty good. But also, you reduce the risk as a company, because you are not dependent anymore of fossil fuels, because you, are, you don't use fossil fuel anymore. So you're not dependent on, on, on the supply, but of the price as well. So it's not necessarily a big cost. But and even if there was, in a concrete represents 5% of the cost of a building. So even if I was, let's say, putting asking for 20, and I'm not, by the way, but let's imagine that I would say let's add 20% to really go to super low carbon uh, concrete. That would add 1% to your total building. Now, Paul, tell me, do you buy organic food when you eat? Do you usually eat organic food? So I literally remember going shopping yesterday and buying broccoli, which was double the price, double the price because I bought the organic brand broccoli versus the regular broccoli. 
Think how much money you spend on a monthly basis on your food because you want to support organic food. Now, would you pay 1% more for your house if you could significantly reduce the CO2 of the building of that house because a lot of the CO2 comes from the cement? And 100%. But that get back, I think it goes back to a point, though. I think you as a business should charge, you should have higher margins on these. But it depends on the market. Right? Because that's the same as owning an I- yeah. a new iPhone, a new iPhone for $1,300, right? You pay a premium because it's a better product. No, so, but it really depends on the market because we really wanted to go for accelerated implementation. So in some business, we haven't put price premium. In some business, we have. Depends on the market appetite, because at the end, if you put it too much at this special product and you remain in insignificant quantities, no one is really winning. So we really wanted to, like I said, ideally, I mean, we have a target of 25% of our sales from 2025 will be eco-packed in concrete. I would be surprised if we wait until 2025 to reach 25%. But for us, it was very important because the only way to accelerate truly decarbonization, CCUS, all these plans are fantastic, but they're not going to come online for several years. Ecopact is today. So one of our main drivers to reduce our CO2 as a company today is to sell more Ecopack. And that's why it's critical for us to do it. It's really interesting. So, Bagley, one of the other things we talked about in our preliminary call was the whole notion of letting the, the problem of greenwashing and all this sort of stuff are the perfect getting in the way of the very good. And you mentioned, it's funny, I, I wrote down two sets of notes when you said you had 90% approval at your AGM for your 2022 type climate projections. And the first thing I wrote, which I crossed out, was why did the 10% disagree? Right? And I, but I crossed that bit out. But more to the point is that if 90% of your shareholders approve this science-based projections that you have adopted. Do companies like yours not get enough credit for the development they're doing? No one's going to cry over wholesome, you know, a large cement problem. We're not sugarcoating, you know, pollution of the past or anything like that. But do hard in general, what did you, sorry, would you call them opportunity, full of opportunity segments, not hard to evade? Is that what you call them? Full of opportunity sector, yeah. yeah. The full of opportunity sector. Do sectors like the cement industry not get enough credit for the developments that they are doing right now in terms of looking at this through a rate of change? So if I answer your very first question, the 10% who didn't vote for us was actually, majority of them was one proxy advisor who would not have that rule that if you were not 1.5 degree, they couldn't vote for you. And last year, we were not yet at 1.5 degree because the roadmap did not exist. So even though we explained to them that until SBTI has a roadmap, we refuse to put a random target, call it 1.5, and say, hey, we are good, we are out there, because that would not have been scientific and that would have exposed us to greenwashing. We've never been accused of greenwashing so far because we've been extremely careful to do everything in a scientific way and rigorous way, including promises, targets, etc. So there's no way we are going to throw that out the window to please the requirement of one proxy advisor to go to 1.5 degree when the SPTI roadmap did not exist. So that was the main reason. And that's why I'm hoping to have a better score this year because we are at 1.5. But in terms of credit, I think, well, the sector doesn't have a fantastic reputation to need, so that doesn't help. And I think there's a lot of myths out there that needs to be progressively killed. And I think science needs to be listened more than opinions. And there's a lot of products that people think can replace cement, but are not scalable or not necessarily truly that better in CO2 because they need to be transported by far, they need to be treated. 
but also because they create other issues such as if you do monoculture of um, certain construction uh, product, then maybe you end up with a lot of biodiversity problem if you try to do that at scale, et cetera, et cetera. So I think what maybe is missing in the debate is a scientific approach of how are we going to serve the humanization trend and we can go very well for the idea of saying, who cares, leave these people without a roof, but that would not be saying that. Uh, how are we going to follow that urbanization trend without cement? I don't think it's possible because there's too much requirement, but also because of resilience. In the Philippines last year, they had over 20 hurricanes. You need concrete to resist hurricanes. Uh, remember the Three Little Pigs story? A hurricane is coming to you, which house do you want to be in? So I think. It's really putting all those elements together where there's a bit too much emotion and not enough science. And that's why the sector continues to have a reputation. But hopefully we are making progress because the fact the entire sector is moving, the fact the entire sector committed to net zero by 2050, the entire GCC are committed to net zero by 2050, is a, is a sign of how we are all progressing together. Of course, I would always tell you all see it's at the lead because that's my job, but but it's important that the entire sector is moving. And I truly think that we are. Got it. Magdalene, we're coming to an end. So I want to get a couple of there's some audience questions which I will answer for you later on. But I have a couple of things I want to talk about. We spoke about what was your called your planetary efficiency index, the dream that you wanted to look at of building a overall index of whether something is good for the planet. Right. Can you talk again? Anyone, Magalie is looking for people to work on this idea with her. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about this concept? Well, I think it's a really interesting dynamic because we do focus so much on CO2 and there's so much more. So think of the you have the CO2 and you have something called CO2 equivalent when smart people have translated methane emissions into CO2. So we only have one KPI called CO2 equivalent. But we don't have a planet equivalent KPI. And when we look at a project, we have to look at the full dependencies of that project. So the CO2 impact, of course, very important, but also the biodiversity impact and also the people impact. And of course, we are talking about adding pears, apples and strawberries together, which uh, except it might make a really nice pie, is pretty complex mathematically. But I think if we don't reach there, we might end up doing big mistakes. And I was commenting earlier about some building material that I'm not necessarily very good for biodiversity because monocultural culture of things that are cut after 30 years when they should live for hundreds of years, does not really help the biodiversity, no matter how good forestry you do. And it's okay to use a bit of it, but it's not okay when you start scaling it up to such an extent. And, and that's why for me, that's what is important, is looking at all the dependencies. I'll just give you a quick example. Think of a dam. We do dams to do CO2-neutral electricity, which is great. And by the way, I love dams because you use a lot of my concrete to make a dam, so that's great. But first of all, if you build a dam over an existing forest, well, the methane that will be emitted by that forest when it decomposes under the water might put your overall CO2 not so great. But... Biodiversity-wise, might not be such a winning game, but that. And when you have to displace thousands of people, not sure it's so great. So how do we consider all those elements and put them into one equation, which tells me at the end, is it good or not to build a dam? 
Maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's not. But today I don't know. I don't know how to measure that. And yeah, if some academics want to work on planet equivalent KPIs, that would be very welcome. <laughs> well, but I think, Magli, it's also important to think about this from a non-classic climate stand, right? So I remember going to a dinner, and, and I used to tell this story a lot, a dinner in London and Long story short, a couple of VCs from San Francisco making the comment that they couldn't understand why India just didn't go to electric mopeds, which I lost my upset and I'll paraphrase and not use the bad language I used at dinner saying it's because they can't afford it. And I think that we need to think about if you're going to look at a global KPI, we need to think about things like development of the emerging world, jobs, education. These, these sorts of things have to play a part. So your dam, your scenario of a dam, for example, has a lot of negative connotations to it. But if that creates thousands of high-paying jobs in an area that didn't have thousands of jobs And if it before, brings electricity. I mean, the UN would class that as an SDG, for example, right? So, And if it brings electricity to people who did not have it. That's why I'm not saying a dam is good or not. I'm just saying... We need to measure all of that before we can establish if it's good or not. Yeah. Again, this sounds like a, like just an enormous data task. So anyone, academics out there, please give Magli a call on this. Because I do think it's important to, again, how do you weight methane or CO2 emissions versus median incomes in communities going up by 30%? Right. And what does that mean for that community as a whole? So I love the notion of this and I hope that someone can embrace this with you. Maybe, well, God, I could talk for another hour on this sort of stuff. I think it's fabulous. Talk a little bit about how you would define success in your role in the next five years. So if you're thinking about this in five years' time as, as your pathway, whatever that five-year pathway looks like, how would you sit back in five years' time, crack open a bottle of wine and go, the last five years have been a success? I'm French. We'll be champagne. But, um, <laughs> so I think the first would be definitely reaching our target, but that's the easy one because we've made those targets to reach them, right? I mean, not to reach them, because that would mean that it's not ambitious, but we are putting everything we need to put in place so we reach them. So reaching our target would be a good first. But that famous transformation I'm talking about, if we have managed to crack it, to crack the paradigm, and to make it something that is more than a dream, but something that has become, I won't say business as usual, that may be a bit too optimistic, but something that as a business makes total sense and is getting gravita everywhere, then I think I would be pretty happy. Thank you so much. This was such an amazing conversation. We'll get this edited and recorded up on um, climatetransform.com in the next couple of days. Magli, good luck with everything. Next time I'm going to come and see you in the next few months and we'll we'll have that glass of champagne and talk about success. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. It was great exchange. Thank you.